pictures out there. Uh, we had, as most people here know, a 60th anniversary of what all my long, long ministry. And uh, that's what all those pictures are about. It's kind of hard to look at. <laughs> anyway, we don't have that going on here. I feel like uh, makes me feel like uh, a communist dictator. Well, I, again, want to thank all of you who were involved. Some people just worked so very, very hard. You were organized to the gills, as I've learned to expect from uh, you people. Click, click, click. Everything just uh, went off beautifully. Uh, not, no fault of theirs, but, you know, it went longer than we expected. I'm an hour and a half guy. When, when something goes longer than an hour and a half, I'm poop. I'm usually gone, but it, you didn't make as many told me said it didn't seem that long because of the way you people had things organized and then they had things cleaned up around here like crazy. I couldn't believe that. So I'm really, really proud of all of you and Aussie and I are really, really grateful. Many of you couldn't be here, you told me, and therefore we won't have to find you. <laughs> It's the ones who didn't tell us I have to pay the fine. It's really good. Uh, Aussie's glad to have it over with. She was stressing all week about having to make any speeches. And uh, so she's going, ooh, that's, that's passed. But we just want you to know we're so proud of this church, proud of your spirit, proud of everybody who works so hard. All right, let's go to John chapter 1. Today, did I say John chapter 1? Okay, there's your first clue. What's in store for you? I didn't sleep a wink last night. Again, one of those said, not a wink. So uh, I'm trying to evade responsibility for anything I might say or do that seems out of line. All right, John chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. That gets it right. I'm going to read the first, uh, the first 13 verses. We switch gears. We don't know where this happened. But as Jesus passed by, John writes, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? Was it this guy? Was it his parents? That he should be born blind. Jesus answered, Neither of those alternatives. It was neither this man who sinned nor his parents. But why did this happen? It was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Is that right? Is that a moral problem? That God should subject this guy to blindness all of his life? in order to make him a platform for God's glory. I mean, a lot of people say, ooh, that doesn't seem like a good God to me. Talk about that. Then Jesus says, switching gears just a little bit, we, not just I. But we must work the works of him who sent me, the Father in heaven. 
as long as it is day, symbolically speaking. The night is coming, symbolically speaking, when no man can work. While I am in the world, here's another refrain, we've heard it before, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, now he does something. We call this an enacted parable. In other words, it's not just a parable. Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Not that kind of parable, but a parable of action. When he had said this, Jesus spit on the ground. And he made clay of the spittle. And then he applied the clay to the man's eyes. It was wet. Then he said to the man, go. Wash in the pool of Siloam there in Jerusalem. Well, that symbolic means something, which translated means sent. John tells us that. Well, the man went away and he washed, and he came back seeing. The neighbors, therefore, those who previously saw him as a beggar, were saying, Hey, isn't this the guy? who used to sit around here in the temple precincts, that's where they sat, and beg. Others were saying, by golly, that is, that is he. But others were saying, no, I don't think so. Sure looks like him. But the man himself said, I'm the guy. Therefore, they were saying to him, various people, well, how were your eyes open? He answered and said, there's this man who's called Jesus. He made clay. He anointed my eyes and he said to me, you're going to love this guy throughout this chapter. He's so direct. He doesn't miss much. Love him. He said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went away and I washed and I received my sight. Simple as that. And they said to him, interesting fellow, where is he? He said, I don't know right now. Physically, I don't know where he is, but he will find out. You know, I'm about to make, by way of introduction, a sociological statement. Uh, what's going on? I hope I don't tick anybody off, but I've done it before. I just get so exercise about the blindness in our culture. We're talking about blindness. And it seems like just about every day there's a new shooting somewhere. One person, two persons, nine persons, whatever. Gun control! We've got to have gun control. And I sit there and I think. Yeah, that's just the way I think. Come on, you idiots. What we need is people control. You never saw the problem that way. How blind can you be? We're living in a culture that in so many ways, to my way of thinking, you might say, well, Jim, your way of thinking is not mine. But to my way of thinking, are just blind, blind, blind. The problem seems so obvious. Well, in this case, the whole universal problem of blindness is reduced to this one symbolic man. And the answer for the whole culture, for the whole race, is right here.
to put an exclamation, an exclamation point on John's earlier quotation of Jesus that he was the light of the world, our Lord now providentially crosses paths with this man who was born blind, congenitally blind. In this man, he finds a perfect showcase for that truth. I am the light of the world. I'm the cure for human blindness. But the method of healing that Jesus chooses here is what I said earlier, is an enacted parable. In other words, not a story told other than by John. Not a story that Jesus tells like so many of his parables, but it's told in action. Its various features, when we get to them, symbolizes the way and the only way that blind men, and if you don't know Christ, you are blind. You are spiritually blind. The only way that this problem, universal problem, can be healed. So let's talk first of all, Pastor, you're using language. Nearly everybody here would understand it because you're here. But what does blindness mean in spiritual terms? Four levels. So let me explain them. One, spiritual blindness means one is unable to see things. That is, especially the things of the world, but also the things of God as they really are. We see it all the time, and we're becoming, we believers are becoming more and more aware of it almost every week. The problem just gets deeper and deeper, and we say, oh my gosh, that's not really true, is it? Yes, it is. I'll call Aussie and say, Aussie, look at this. Oh, my. Well, the road signs in our culture, I'm saying as I explain spiritual blindness, they're reversed so that the broad way that leads to life or they think leads to life looks to be the truth. But it's actually, as Jesus said, the way of death. The way of death is the narrow way, which seems like the way of death to the culture but it is the way of life. Two, what does spiritual blindness mean? It means that if you are spiritually blind, and let me say if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are spiritually blind in four senses. This is the second one. It means you're unable to navigate this life without falling into the ditch of self-destruction. You're actually on that path. Now, some destructive paths are obvious, others are more subtle ways of ruin. Thirdly, what do we mean by spiritual blindness? It means, boy, do we see this. One is often unable to distinguish good from evil. Isaiah said it, not an exact quote, but this is the exact spirit of it. Wow, Israel, you call good evil. You call evil good. You call bitter sweet, and you call sweet bitter, and so on. Well, we're there, and that's where spiritual blindness brings people. You're not able to differentiate between wisdom and folly. In fact, the blindness is often so very bad that one sees what all of us who have been enlightened by Christ, enlightened by God's Word, 
what he calls good. We see it flatly called evil. That dysfunctional effect is rampant in the Western world. It's not only here in our country. Somebody, one of you, took a vacation recently, as others of you have, and they were over in Europe. They said, Jim, it's worse in Europe than it is here. It's hard to believe. But yet when you think back historically, it's not hard to believe. And fourthly, spiritual blindness, what is it? It means that you're unable to see who or what God himself is. You've got all these false images of God, and they mislead you down the path of destruction. Well, that leads us to a second thing I want to talk about here. It right, hits us right in the face. A popular Jewish assumption about human suffering. His disciples, Jesus, they were not all coached up yet. They were still in the developmental stage. And uh, a lot of things they didn't understand yet and wouldn't until after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, then a great enlightenment. They were under the reign of Jew Jewish myths. One Jewish myth, they are very popular at the time, and we see it if you're familiar with the book of Job, and most of you are, is that they had an erroneous idea that if somebody was under the grip of affliction, any kind of suffering, whatever hell was raging around them, it was due to sin. Well, there's a level at which that's true. All human suffering is owing to the intrusion of sin, starting with Adam and running down the bloodstream of the race. It's in our DNA. But their thought was, that uh, if you're going through some of the things that some of you are going through, some of the things that Aussie and I go through, well, there must be some sin somewhere around us, and uh, that must be it. You can't be innocent, and so you better get on your knees and start dealing with God. So this man born blind, somebody said there was a man or his parents. The man, how could he be born Blind. Well, among the Jews, I don't know this because I have not encountered it personally in my studies, but scholars, some scholars say that there was on the edges of Jewish intellectual rabbis an idea that a person could sin in their embryo stage. Well, that's kind of far out, but the disciples had no other clue. They didn't know. Somebody had to do it. That's the Jewish mythology. So was it this guy somehow, some way? Well, they, they were nonplussed. They were flummoxed. They didn't know what the heck. And Jesus said, you pose two alternatives. Neither one is right. And it's well that we understand this. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you why this man was born blind. Because there's a sovereign God. And he wanted to use this man's life as a platform, as a stage, to show forth his glorious works. That's why this man is blind. Huh? I said, is that a moral problem? Is that right of God? Well, right here, you may have wondered about that kind of thing yourself. Doesn't mean there's anything evil about you. You just, what do I do with that? 
Well, I'm going to explain to you. This is called apologetics, defense of the faith. I'm going to explain to you why that's not a moral problem, and we should understand it. The issue is, let me crystallize it again. How could God, if he's really a good God, how could he or how could he allow Satan to inflict this misery, as in the case of Job, upon an innocent human being so that that person may eventually in some way or other be a showcase for the glorious work of God? Well, what just happened is an instance of that. But the moral problem is no moral problem. It is dissolved once we get a biblical perspective. Explain that, Jim. Well, first of all, the starting assumption is wrong. You know, in all thinking, human thinking, most of the time when things go haywire, if you look at them analytically, you discover what people don't tell you, what their assumptions are. And you discover that their assumptions are entirely wrong. And that's the reason we have a so-called moral problem here. So let me unwind that. First of all, get this. Our sovereign God can do nobody wrong. There's not a person in this room, no matter what God would allow or what he'd allow Satan to do, not a person in this room, including this pastor, that God can do wrong. You say, well, no, I don't understand that. Well, I'm going to explain it. It's for the simple reason that no human being, including this blind man, has any moral standing before God such that God owes him or her or they or we, God owes us it. God doesn't owe Jim Andrews flip. I've served him for most of my life, but that's my privilege. And it says, God doesn't owe me dip. In his sight, though he doesn't treat us this way, in his sight, all of us are natively corrupted from birth. We are morally ruined in his sight. We have no moral standing. God could wrap us all up in a ball and throw us in the trash. He would not have done any of us wrong. The wages of sin, and we've all got it thickly, the wages of sin is death. And if God destroyed every single one of us, it would be no more than we deserve. People react at that. That's our problem. We think too much of ourselves. We do not understand the mercy and the grace of God because we don't understand what I just said. Say, well, Johnny doesn't have any sense of self-worth. Well, Johnny probably does because to make that statement to him, he would not likely to say, well, that's right. That's the reason you see very little repentance because we, and that includes you know who, especially at times, we have a higher opinion of ourselves than God knows we ought to have.
we're sinners. It's not just what we do on the outside. It's what we think on the inside. It's our attitudes. It's all of that, all contrary to the will of God, all contrary to the holiness of God. I'll say this, nothing new, just kind of a repetition. There's not an innocent human being in the sight of God in any age or any place other than the man Christ Jesus. While individual humans may not be guilty of specific transgressions, there are things I've never done. There are things you've never done. There are things, God forbid, I would ever think of doing. But then there's a lot of other crap I've thought of. Somebody said, you know what they say about marriage? Jim, you say, Hossie, did you ever think of divorcing Jim? She said, well, no, murder, yes. Yeah. Yes. I got to tell you this one. Oh, see, hide your face. I got to tell you this one. She got so mad at me. Oh, see, she runs tired. She does. She's got good reason for it. Just running tired. And sometimes I'm running tired too, but impatience is part of my DNA. We were trying to put something up in a, a window in their house at Christmas time. Nobody gets over there and sees it, but we like to do it anyway. And I gave her some lights to go over, put behind a small tree that was over there. Well, I'm just impatient. And when I see somebody going about something crazy, I say, go stop it. Get it right. Well, that's what I did. The bathtub that she had to get over, it's really a jacuzzi, which nobody uses and she had to climb over there, and she was doing it all wrong. She's not mechanical. I'm just a little bit more. And so she was trying to get it over there, and it was going left, right, every which way. Oh, see, I said from the other room, honey, get it around this way. She says, what? And I said, honey, you got it completely wrong. You've got to get it out in front. And she was getting it in the back and this, that, and the other. Well, this is my little wife, Aussie. In all of my our career, I've scarcely heard the word darn. All of a sudden, all her weariness broke loose. She turned the air blue. <laughs> It'd take an urban dictionary to find all the things that she called me. <laughs> that room is still blue. It has to be, has to be, I tease her about that all the time. It's broke out laughing. I couldn't believe those words coming from Aussie's mouth. She had had it with a fellow called Jim Andrews. I mean, had it. Well, we all have those things. We look at, well, I've never done that. It's what we think. God sees that. And we can be like a Pharisee. Oh, I would never do that. I would never do that. But, We've done a lot of things in our mind. I've never committed adultery. But if you lusted, well, you've done it. You've done it. And God knows how much. Well, you're getting the idea, I think. So, secondly, I'm dealing with the moral problem. If there's a moral problem, there's not. I'm explaining why. First of all, 
we have no moral standing before God. He owes us nothing. doesn't owe us a bit. Secondly, God is the potter and we are the clay. Romans 9, verses 20 through 21. don't know whether that will appear up there, but don't worry about it. The Apostle Paul said that. God made us. He's the sovereign creator. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God, accusing God of not doing something right? The thing molded will not say to the molder, that's us, the thing molded. Why did you make me like this? We don't have any standing. We're the clay. God can do with us exactly what he pleases. He can take our life and use it any way he wants to use it. And if he wants to take this pastor and if he wants to make him feel like and look like a failure, for whatever his reasons, he is right. He's the potter. You and I are the clay. Squitter crabbing. We don't have any standing. He's the sovereign. So, thirdly, I'm explaining why this is no moral problem. We've gone far enough, but I'll go a little further. By definition, what is good and fair? Everybody talks about equity, equity. But what is good and fair and just is not determined by some human decree or some cosmic court of law or universal council of ethicists. What does determine? Those things is God's moral being. God is the standard. He defines what is good and loving and right, and therefore his actions combined with his purposes are always consistent with the truth that God is love. What is love? God is the standard. Whether the myopic, the nearsighted eye of man is able to see it or not, God does not have to answer Jim Andrews' standards, but in fact, his own being is the standard. Well, by this purpose clause, Jesus means that in the plan of heaven, this particular hereditary affliction of this blind man fit the purpose of God and at the right time, God made it a living parable and beneficiary of his redemptive work. So look, any suffering that in our case becomes a showcase, let's personalize, I'll take me. Any suffering that comes to me, I don't like it, it doesn't make me feel good, not in the least. But any suffering that in our case becomes a showcase for the redemptive work of God, for the glory of God, is rightly considered well worth the price. If God chooses to take my life and make it something I wouldn't have chosen, make things go away that I wouldn't have chosen, make them painful, and in the assessment of God, the sovereign God, he makes it work out for his glory, that's good. That's a good use of my life. And I've got to come to terms with that. In this instance, the man born blind, God seized upon his temporary blindness to help him discover everlasting life and light. You think, if, you think in the end he wouldn't say, boy, I'm glad I was blind. You better believe he would. 
Now, the exhortation of seizing the moment. Jesus comes along here. This is good. I love this. Jesus kind of breaks off. He'll do that. It's not irrelevant. He breaks off. Remember, he's always coaching up his disciples. So he kind of breaks off and he says, there's a Latin phrase for it, carpe diem, seize the moment, seize the opportunity. Jesus said, look, man, got a lesson for you. Seize the day. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. He's anticipating he's going to be going when he says we. And you're going to pick up where I left off. And just remember, there's day and there's night. And while it is day, while there is light, while there is opportunity to do my work, because there won't always be opportunity, seize it, do it, go at it 110%. That we've all got to remember what we're here for. In other words, Jesus is saying when it comes to the presence of light or the truth, this is prime time. Like the sun, the physical sun, it's always there. But at times the cloud cover, as we know here in Oregon all too well, the cloud cover obscures it. And then there is literal nighttime. Whatever, light is less present and less illuminating at at other times. When it's brilliantly illuminating, it's good to take advantage of the opportunity. Jesus says, the time is coming when no man can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And he was there. He was about to be crucified. But even in his crucifixion, all of that, he was the light of the world and display of the love of God. So he's telling his disciples, the time is coming. Yet 40 years later, 40 years later, it was going to hit. Darkness was going to hit the land. The Romans were going to come in. They were going to obliterate Judea and Jerusalem. That was not a time to be out doing street evangelism. The door was closed at that time. Not going to happen. Darkness was going to settle over the land. Pause. I think that's what's happening in our country. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet, but my bones tell me. People wonder, is the Lord coming? Well, he's coming. I don't know when. But I think, I think there's going to be rough going up ahead. Jesus is saying, as long as you have opportunity, exploit it. Get busy. Do the things that I've called you to do. Go where I've told you to go. Be what I've called you to be. Do what I've called you to do. Be light. I'm the light of the world. You reflect me. So while the time and the opportunity is there, seize the moment. There was about to be a sea change, Jesus is warning. I think this notion of the transience and variableness of the intensity of the light of Christ among men is reflected in Paul's admonition to Timothy. I always told my students this about preaching the word, which I'm doing right now. Paul told Timothy, preach the word. And usually in seminary, but preach the word, preach the word, preach the word. That's good. But he says, in season and out of season. You know what he meant by that? 
there are times when it's out of season. He goes on to say, the time is coming, and it goes in cycles. It's happening in our country when people are not listening. When they go to church, what do they want? They want to come. We're not talking about out there. We're talking about right in here. When people come to church, what do they want? (laughs) They want entertainment. What do people want? They want to feel good. We had a handsome young couple. Oh, it's been 20 years ago. Walk out that those two double doors right there and tell one of our pastors. They were irritated. I didn't come to hear that stuff. I want to hear stories and funny jokes. Well, they were headed the right place out that door because that's not what they were going to hear here. It's when the darkness begins to settle over a culture. And Paul says those times come. The time will come when they will not pay attention to sound teaching. They don't want it. That's not what they want. It bores them. What they want is stuff that tickles the ears. That's when the darkness is settling over the land. And it's settling over our land to various degrees. So then Jesus is going to have put this on speed dial. Then Jesus is an acted parable. He says to this man that he has in front of him, here's what I want you to stand still here for a minute. What's going on here? I want you to notice that when the Lord works, this is just a sidebar. He doesn't have to heal every blind man the same way or every lame person. God is various in his ways of doing things. He doesn't have to work in your life the same way he works in my life. He doesn't have to do that. Well, then all of a sudden everybody's caught. I'm not literally going to do this. Jesus said, just stand here for a moment. He gets him some spittle. Hits in the dust on the ground. He gets down. Somebody says, that's dirty. (laughs) Don't want to do that. Jesus had to do what Jesus had to do. He wasn't worried about your health list. And he got down. That's enough. Pulls it up. Honey, you want to come up here? (laughs) Pulls it up. The man wasn't wearing glasses. Smears it all over his eyes. I'm sure everybody around that guy says, what is going on here? He says, you know, the pool of Siloam means sent, symbolic. Jesus is sending him. Will he obey Jesus? Will he do what Jesus says in order to have his sight restored? Go to the pool of Siloam. Everybody around here knows where that is. He's blind. I'm sure he had to enlist somebody to get him to go to the pool of Siloam. Go and wash that stuff off. And the man didn't hesitate. He said, it, I go. So he went to the pool of Siloam, went down there, washed all that stuff off, and he came back seeing. All of that was symbolic of the one who is the light of the world, who gives sight to the blind. That clay, what did it represent? It represents the one who was sent into the world to give sight to the blind. That clay represented the incarnation. The incarnation of the Son of God coming into the world. God became also man, flesh. 
And that applied to the man's eyes was the cure for his blindness. And he came back seeing. And he came back a changed man. And he was so changed. I don't know. Have you seen this? I used to see it a lot, but I think it's a commentary on the days. Have you seen people who were born again, really changed by the Spirit of God? And somehow they look like they've had a bath. How many of you have noticed that? A lot of you have noticed it. It's it's David. He looked like he needed a bath. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's, it's David, or it's this one or that one. Is that really him? You've seen people before that you you wonder if they were the same persons. I know Ossie's dad was like that. It was a, just wasn't like the same person. They're changed. What has happened inside has begun to project itself outside. In their eyes, there's light. Their smile, everything is different. That's the way it was with this blind man. His eyes were no longer just blank. They were alive. They were shining. Is that the same guy? Yeah, it is. Some said, no, I think it just looks like him. He said, it's the same guy. <laughs> it's me. And he was proud to profess it. He didn't know where Jesus had gone physically, but he knew who did it. And we know who did it. When people are born again, and he saw, and he's going to show this whole world in the next section that he saw. I love him. I always love this blind man. He shoots the Pharisees down like he's a scholar. <laughs> well, I want to tell you, if anyone is here, this is a congregation. We're, to a certain extent, preaching to the choir. But I want to tell anyone here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus that you're blind. I've said that. I'm repeating it for emphasis. You're blind in every way that I described at the beginning. Jesus is not sending you to the pool of Siloam. It was an enacted parable. But he is through this parable telling you that he is the light of the world. The one who came into the world, the God-man, God who became flesh. It's this one who will heal you, who will change you, who will give you life and that more abundantly. He's the one who will enable you to be a participant in the resurrection and to know what we call the fullness of life. You'll never have it until you know him. I invite you, I beg you, to receive Jesus as the light of the world, the one who will cure your blindness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this enacted parable of the Lord Jesus, where he took a man born blind, just like we all. We're born in sin. We're born in blindness. We can't see and we can't understand. We get it. We're all mixed up about life. We're all mixed up about reality. But we pray that the Son of God would give light to the eyes of any blind here, our Father, who 
recognize their blindness and want to see. We ask it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, as I look around the audience here, I see that there are many people that were here last night for the celebration of Jim and Olsey's 60th year in ministry. The sermon is an example of that 60 years and the, the constancy of the preaching of the gospel, which you have just heard. That has always led to action on the part of people of Lake Bible Church. And I say to you, behold, here is our Uganda 2023 team that is leaving this next week on Thursday. We're here to commission them. Before I do that, I just want to remind you that the theme of our mission this year is preparing for Jesus. If you look out at the, at the signposts when you leave the church here and you can see over the years what we have gone to do, uh, by way of our mission themes in Uganda, following Jesus, loving Jesus, trusting Jesus, glorifying Jesus, and loving him. And this year, when we top that off with uh, preparing for Jesus, of course, we're going to do something that kind of echoes the sermon. And not directly, because next year we're going to go over with, uh, Lord willing, with the theme of preparing for Jesus too. So we're going to first ensure that people understand that the times that we're living in sort of beg the question, where do you stand with him? And emblematic of that, uh, we are using uh, the parable in the Bible of the 10 virgins, remembering that five of them had the oil and they were ready to meet the master. And five of them who were ready to meet the master didn't have the oil. Why not? What was missing? That's what we're going to be talking about on this mission. To my left here, we have a, a couple of, uh, what can I say? Men that have been already in Uganda several times. Randy here, Randy Warren has been three times. Or is this your third time? All right. One, two, yes. Dan... He has been there many times, at least four. This is your fourth time. And not here is Roy Klein. He was a member of the church for many years here, twice an elder of the church. He is going on this mission as well. He's joining us from Bend. He has been on the mission. Uh, this thing is his eighth mission. Totally, though, we have been on this mission for 16 years. So we've seen a lot of development there. And uh, this year is going to be no difference in terms of the things that we're going to be doing by way of supporting two schools there with over 1,500 children. So over the years, I've seen graduating classes rotate and rotate and rotate. Some of the kids that I saw initially there are now married and have children. So <clears throat> it's been a long time. Also, we have two newcomers here. We have Kelly McDaniel and her daughter, Grace. It's their first time. And I know that they're going to really have a wonderful time there. So let me pray to that effect here, and please join me in this. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great opportunity that you have given us. We could not, of course, as you know, 
do that without the support of all the people of Lake Bible Church. We had a wonderful mission celebration and auction. And uh, because of that, we're able to go and use those funds to spread your gospel from Lake Bible Church all the way 10 time zones away from here to Uganda. And we just pray that we will be able to uh, prepare the people for the coming of Jesus, just like we need to be prepared for the coming of Jesus. We thank you for the privilege and honor of doing that. We thank you for this fellowship of Jesus that you have given us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.